You are listening to the Living Truth Podcast with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. Please stay tuned to Living Truth as we engage in an in-depth journey of discovery through the discussion of God's Word for the purpose of devotion and godly living. We pray that you would be blessed through today's conversation and that God would sanctify your heart in truth, for His Word is truth. Good afternoon. This is John Corr and the Reverend C.L. Mitchell coming to you from Phoenix, Arizona. This is Living Truth, and we are so glad that you are tuning in. If this is your first time listening in, we are a uh, couple of friends who love to talk about the scripture in a relaxed setting around the table, and we have a cup of coffee, coffee with us, and we are imagining that you are listening in. And uh, it's been a while since we've been uh, recording. Uh, but we've been going through the book of Jonah, and we're going to pick up in that book. But before we do that, I've got to say hi to my friend. CL, how are you doing, brother? I am wonderful. How are you? Uh, I'm really well. Um, it's been, you know, it's been a few months since we recorded. It like has been. Two or three months. And you know, I, I want our listeners to know that we haven't sought to neglect Rick recording both you and I right. have had extraordinarily busy summers yes and we have longed to get back to the consistency of recording and to get back frankly to the word of God because yeah. it's really our word our love for the word of God that really birthed this yeah and what's more we delight and we are extremely humbled and honored that so many of you around the world are listening and by the way we'd love to thank one particular person who was so gracious as to send us a gift card uh, yes. and you know who you are as yes. a special listener so that we could uh, have hot chocolate or coffee so uh, this cup is on you and yes. we want to express our gratitude to very you very much that. yes that was a complete blessing and just brought a smile to our face and uh so, yeah, it's been a while. We have been very, very busy with our schedules. Uh, we're hoping to be able to record more often. It's just uh, because of schedule, it's, it's been difficult. So uh, thank you for your patience, and thank you for your listenership. And uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, anyway, so let me do this. Let's jump into the Word of God. And I know how, how fast I like to go, but certain people are more like molasses, and they will mean I, they that shall hurts. remain that they that hurts. name any names, but <laughs> <laughs> you know if the spirit's convicting you, then <laughs> you know who you are. <laughs> anyway, we'll just let the Lord lead us and have fun. Okay, so I'm going to jump into the book of Jonah, uh, and we actually left off with verse nine, um, but I'm going to read in verse four just Marvelous. to get a running start. It says that the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. And then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for, uh, for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fell, uh, fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about, about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And he said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? 
And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear or I worship the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of, of the Lord, and because he had told them. And so they said to him, What should we do to, that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account, on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to uh, return to the land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on, a, on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, I don't know about you, but if that's quite an excursion on a cruise, uh, I would want my money back if I had uh, to encounter that. Can you imagine? But in all seriousness, here you have you have the scene where, of course, the the storm has gotten stormier, and the sailors have gotten more frighteder, if that's a word, more more desperate, <laughs> more frightened, <Yeah. laughs> become more frightened, become more frightened. Okay, I, I can make up words. You know, Shakespeare made up words left all the time, right? He did indeed. But they're more frightened. These are seasoned. These are seasoned sailors. And the storm is getting worse and worse and worse. And here's Jonah sleeping. And of course, they finally corner him. And he finally, he finally, he finally lets it out. We finally hear the man speak uh, for the first time in this. And it's interesting what he does say and the events around that. So let's talk about it. Yeah, this, John, is, is a, an interesting aspect of this passage, right? Because before... Um, Jonah begins to answer. There is a series of questions, and we've reviewed yes. those questions. Yes. And the uh, book is kind of interesting because it only has twelve questions, so it's economic right. on its use of questions. And the majority of the questions are going to be asked by uh, the Phoenician sailors in the book. Right. Um, uh, but within the framework of this passage, as he begins to answer, his answer seems, if you're just reading on. On the surface, yeah. kind of just to respond, but it's really not that. Right. For instance, when he starts off, he says, um, I am a Hebrew. Right. Now, first of all, that particular term to describe his ethnicity right. um, is very, very particular on behalf of the author right. because he uh, Hebrew is used to describe the nation of Israel or the family of Israel before the exile. Right. So just the usage of this word actually right. describes the time right. of this book for us. It's telling us that it's a fanciful language, a pre-exilic, which means before, before the, the exile right. book, right? right? So he uses that, but in saying that he's a Hebrew, he's not using his identification ethnically just to say, okay, you got me, this is who I am, right? He's using this almost as a an arrogant slap in the face to compare and contrast himself with them. It, it would be like if we said, I'm an American, 
It's okay. It, it could be like that. I'm, yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. I'm an, I am American. It's yes. for you. But sometimes, you know, it could be like you are going, you're somewhere else and you... With a certain sense of pride. Yes. Or, or, this, or arrogance. Right. Uh, and, and in this particular text... But, but go on, I'll let you finish because... Okay. Well, in this particular text, this is kind of how he's using it. He's, he's, he's suggesting, I'm covenantal. Right. Um, I'm privileged. Right. I'm connected with I am or the eternal one as opposed to you Phoenician pagans who don't know God. Now, interesting when he says I am, I am Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Now, in their minds, they knew there was a reputation of the followers of I am, the followers of Yahweh, the Hebrews, the Israelites, and that went back to even... Egypt, you know, to to the Exodus. Correct. You know, this was not something that was um, just made up. People around uh, around the, the the part of the world would have known who these people were. Yes. Um, and what their God did to the Egyptians when they, even though that was years before, uh, they was, still would have known the reputation. So it's interesting. He does bring that. It's almost like he's pulling up a trump card. Um, I am a Hebrew. Now, that says a lot. That but here's the other thing too: is but at this at this point of time, and we know in, in Israel's history, there was times during their history when they weren't following God entirely; that they were following the Baal gods, let's say, of of the land, and other false gods, let's say, of the Canaanites. And so, perhaps he's saying this with with such authority because he says, "I'm a Hebrew," and then he says, "I fear or I worship the, the Lord God." Yes, but the the way that he does this is unusual in the Hebrew text, and I and I just stopped to translate here. Right? Yeah. He says, um, and he said to them, um, "A Hebrew I am, right. and uh, the Eternal One, God um, of the heavens, I fear." Right. Now, what's interesting in the structure of Hebrew is you would normally put the verb before the direct object. Right. Here, he puts the direct object before the verb. So he's and the idea is he's emphasizing, hey, I'm a Yahwist. Right. And, and, and I'm true to the one true God, the eternal one. Um, um, and, and he's comparing and contrasting, almost looking down upon these Phoenicians. And, and when he uses this word, I fear, uh, it's a word that's oft used for worship, but here's how the word is normally used. It's normally used, this term yare, is yeah. normally used for um, a, 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 an individual who uh, reveres or respects or worships God with the result of obedience. Right. Right? Now, earlier in this passage, it's actually used for the fear, right. not Yahwehistic fear, right. but it's normally used for the fear that the sailors are experiencing well, as a result of the storm. And it's going to be used in the verses after the same word about, correct about them fearing and it's and it's moving the sailors in the verses before to an excitedness that produces response right but here the way he's using it he wants to say quite arrogantly if you will quite pietistically self-righteously hey i worship the right god i, I fear the covenantal god but this is his result well jonah I, the question is 
if you revere this God so much and you want to put an emphasis on this, yeah. why is it that they're having more of a reactionary response to I am the eternal one over and above your lack of response yeah, I, in trying to contrast himself to the eternal God or rather to these Phoenician sailors? He almost identifies himself as as kind of a, a sore thumb standing out because they're at least responding. You know the right God and you're not even responding to I him in obedience. I, I don't know if I if I'm on you with that. Oh, go right ahead. Because I don't know, I don't know if I'm sensing arrogance on him. Um, because it's almost as if I, I have to I have to believe that he knows that he's the cause of the storm. Okay, there's a reason why he goes into the ship, goes down, hides out, falls asleep, and is like kind of like avoiding everything. To the point where then when he gets up finally and he realizes it's not getting, I can't sleep this off, right? I can't uh, ignore this problem. It's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Finally, he has to fess up. Hey, listen, I'm the person here. This is, this is my fault. He's, I think he actually, is he, can, he be, can he be arrogant? I don't know because he's finally fessing up to who he is, who he follows, what he's supposed to be about, uh, to the point where he even says, "Hey, listen, here's how you're going to stop the storm. Throw me overboard." You know, um, if he were arrogant, he would say, "Guys, I have this under control. I will make this stop in God's name. You know, it's okay. Have no fear." I don't get that. I get the sense more of that. He's finally. It's like he's been backed into a corner. The gig's up. He's finally fessing up and say, "Okay, it's it's on me." Now, does he like his mission? No, he still doesn't like his mission, but he finally realizes this storm's not going away. I'm, I'm, I can't run away anymore. Okay, here's what, here's what's going on. But it is, it is interesting that he's, he doesn't. The way he answers their questions isn't in the in the order you expect. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm not sure if I'm with you on the arrogance yeah. part. Here's why I we would, can arm wrestle about yeah, it. He, here's <laughs> why I would suggest that there's arrogance afoot. Number one, in the verses before, in the pretext, um, he does not, in the prophetic formula, um, he doesn't pray. So that's number one. Uh, he doesn't, in fact, pray until he's in the fish under personal duress. Right. Even when the individuals try to move him to prayer, and even when they're in jeopardy, he's so still not moved say, to prayer. You could say he's arrogant towards God in the sense of not wanting to... Um, bow down to God's will. Well, I think that's an aspect of arrogance because he doesn't pray. But then here's the next thing. Again, what you have here within the, the, the structure is this individual who, during his prophetic commission, resists the eternal one and goes a different direction. Okay. And in his doing that, right. in his doing that, when he's finally confronted, he's confronted and he wants to change the Hebrew structure, which is a which is a very important thing because he wants to put the direct object first and say, the Lord. And then later on in chapter number two, he never says, I'm sorry, and he never repents. So I can see, okay, let me give you this. I can see his arrogance against the Assyrians, against the Ninevites. The reason is because, you know, after he delivers the message... He gets up on the hillside and grabs a bag of popcorn and says, "Okay, I want to see a I'm fire looking show." for their destruction. Right yeah. against these guys, I don't think he's necessarily in that same. So does he have arrogance? I could see that later in the book. I think here it's more of 
you know, he has to at least confess, hey, I'm the one that's the, that's causing this. Oh, to be sure, I think there's an aspect of confession, but what I'm suggesting is I think you begin to see the seeds of arrogance because, well, as because you said... because he's running away. Oh, not just because he's running away, but I think that is a support to it. Yeah. I think also in his prayer later on, he's going to talk about those who make sacrifices to false gods, but I, in but, contrast, okay. will, will, will sacrifice to the true God. And then, of course, in chapter 3, he reluctantly goes and he witnesses to them, but chapter four becomes a support of right. chapter two, arguing this man's inner thoughts are now divulged and not cured. He st- he simply has the same exact self-righteous, pietistic arrogance that he had so in I, chapter one, chapter two. Now it's really seen in chapter four climactic. So I will give you, I'll give you this arrogance there. I would just say maybe in chapter one, it's not against the Phoenician sailors. It's more of just avoiding God and arrogance in that way, still avoid... Because, you know, at the end of the book, he's still in the same boat. He's... No no pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) He's still the same man. Really, if you look at the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah is not about the fish. It's not about the Assyrians or Ninevites. It's not about the sailors. It's about Jonah and his own heart. The obstinate prophet. The obstinate prophet. So, yeah, I could see there's arrogance there. um, and, And we see... You know how that how God works him, but here's what's interesting: that despite the fact he's arrogant, despite the fact he's he's running from God, I, I just think um, it here's God still wanting to here's God still wanting to use him, and here's here's this here's this prophet who's going to assume that God wants me dead now. I've been disobedient. God's going to want me dead because the assumption here is throw me in the sea. I'm in the middle of the ocean. Certainly, I'm not going to survive, but you guys will. There, there's, and maybe I'm jumping ahead of that. It seems that his God's working everything he can to, to soften or humble this man's heart. Um, but God is also the one who, who still, he's not giving up on the man. Uh, whereas we would say, you know, he's been disqualified, or we would say, um, you know, we, well, why is God even bothering with this guy? I mean, it seems like that God is as much interested in this man Jonah as he is in the Ninevites he's trying to save as well. And at this point of the story, of course, the people that really get it are the sailors. They're the ones who are calling out to God. They're the ones who are praying and having this fear. Uh, but this confession, and this confession is is central to the section of, of Scripture. It's actually a chiastic structure, and it's the central point, this confession um, of who who he is and who God is. Uh, I think it's interesting that he, he points out, he says, I fear or I worship uh, the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, as if to say, okay, you guys have your Canaanite gods who you believe make the heaven or the, um, the, the Phoenician gods, um, but I serve the Lord God who made the sea and the dry land, as if you now he's the superior God of all. You know, he's shouting that at the same time he's running away from that. You know? Yeah, I, I think I think still within within keeping that there is a smack of 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 piousm and arrogance that he's that he is presenting in his in his comparison right. developmentally to both the Phoenicians and you're gonna see it with the Assyrians later on even in a stronger way. But if you notice what he says, he says, I am a Hebrew 
I worship the eternal one, the all-powerful of heaven who made the dry the who made the sea and the dry land. Now what's interesting in that entire sentence is Jonah if we step back off of this has great orthodoxy. Now what I mean by that is he has an appropriate conservative standardized theological belief. He knows the creeds. That's correct. Right. However, if you look throughout the biblical text from Genesis to Revelation, orthodoxy is to lead to orthopraxy, which is... That's a fancy word. (laughs) (laughs) Which is um, a biblical standardized belief system that that results, orthodoxy, that results, results in an appropriate behavioral system, right? And so what we're seeing here is a conflict in his integrity and in his practice, because what he believes and what he has stated, he is absolutely inconsistent with. Namely, if you believe this, Jonah, the question raises or rises, why aren't you behaving in this way? Okay, so let's just, let me just ask a question. Are we already for discussion? He says, I fear the Lord God who made heaven, the heaven and this, uh, who made this, I, sorry, I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He he understands that who he serves, he understands that God's in control of this raging sea. In fact, he even says later on, hey, listen, it's on account of me that the sea is like this. He recognizes the signs of God's hand uh, in the situation. He recognizes that God's the source of the storm. And he understands why. Um, I, I just I think it's interesting that sometimes, even despite that, there's times as believers where we will ignore the hand of God. As believers, sometimes we will ignore the very obvious signs of God, maybe not necessarily storms, but very obvious things that God does, either roadblocks he has, you know that we're trying to plow through, or uh, or or doors that have been opened that we're not willing to step through. Uh, maybe not because maybe because of arrogance, but oftentimes we see and know what we should do. We have good orthodoxy, good, good theology, but practice, the actual following through that, for some reason we often run from that or disobey God in that, and we think that that will avoid the situation, excuse me, that, that will avoid the situation. But it's interesting that even as believers who, who God is maybe not to the extreme of Jonah, but God has a will for that believer. He has a destination for that believer, has a purpose for that believer, and for some reason are, are choosing to ignore the very obvious signs. Um, God still works in that, in that person in a, in, in a very gracious way. Absolutely. To lead them still to his will. But it's not uncommon for a believer to avoid the obvious things of God. And Absolutely. That's, and that's, you know, I, I, can, I can attest to that myself for... God's saying obvious things, and I didn't want to hear it. Mm. I didn't want to. I didn't want to believe it. I didn't want to admit it. That's arrogant on my part. It was unwillingness, and, and maybe like Jonah, an unwilling heart to do and and follow the things of God. And God is still gracious to work in that person's heart, and never and does not give up. Thank God, you know, it doesn't involve a scenario of being jumped over overboard into <laughs> into an ocean, you know, and and having a fish swallow you. That that would be like the worst case scenario. But the point is is recognizing the hand of God and 
taking that step to say, okay, this is God moving. I'm going to be obedient. Because all of us struggle in some sense with accepting God's will uh, for our lives or God's will for a certain situation and, or point of time in our life because it's maybe not what we would want. And so there's always that point where we say, God, your will be done. And God wants to lead us to that, you know? And so I'm seeing in Jonah, yes, he's obstinate. Yes, he's, uh, he knows better. But I see somebody, a believer in God, and God working on that believer uh, to still fo- bring him to his own, to God's will in, in, in fulfilling God's purpose. Absolutely. I'd like to, I'd like to... Um, and that's not in the Hebrew. No. That's <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to take a, a bigger look now at, at his orthodoxy. And, and when I say a bigger view... I mean this, I should say a more concentrated view at his orthodox statement or his standard sure. doctrine. Um, when he uses this phrase, he says, um, um, I am a Hebrew, and I particularly want to center in on, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, first of all, this is very reminiscent of Genesis 1. Yes, yes. And it's also very reminiscent of Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, the Shema. And it's also reminiscent of the warnings uh, in the book of Joshua. So I want to take that kind of view here. First of all, what he's giving is absolutely accurate, and it becomes a polemic of sorts or an argument, argument. if you will, contra the foreign gods. Now, there were competing narratives of creation in the ancient Near East. Of course, you know the Gilgamesh epic, the Atrahasis, the Enuma Elish, wherein there was an idea that there were many gods, right? right? Right. And so it was a polytheistic view, not a monotheistic view. That is polytheistic, many gods versus monotheism, one God. And so in this competing kind of um, um, uh, view of deity, God clarifies in Genesis chapter number one, no, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So Moses wants to emphasize per God, that in fact it is I am, or Yahweh, who is God of gods and who is the creator, who is responsible for the heavens and the earth and the sea in the Genesis narrative. Okay, I'm just, I'm just, I think in images a lot of times. Um, here you have, I'm, I'm picturing a boxing match. Here in this corner you have the Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth, the maker of the, the sea and the dry land, and everything is in and, and fully in control. And here you have a little prophet who has to hide out in the bottom of a ship to hide out from this God. I mean, there's no match. What kind of, what, I mean, it was like what kind of person would think that they can get away or face off against that? You know, I don't think, you know, I'm not sure if, if the, 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 the statement, you know, the maker of, of the sea and the dry land is meant to in um, to scare Jonah into submission, but it's sort of a reminder. It's it's as if when he's saying it, he should be reminded. Oh yeah, I'm I'm running away from that God. Well, you're talking about not a cosmic deity. You're talking about the cosmic right. deity, and and 
when you're looking at this narrative, uh, of course, Genesis is written in 1445 BCE. Right. Uh, it is written by Moses in order to, first of all, inform Israel who have been in Egypt in the land of Goshen for 430 years, right? right. And so the fear, the danger is we're coming out of Egypt. We could perchance borrow their gods, right? Or we're going so, into the land of Canaan. We could borrow their gods. So, so Moses is writing this as a polemic. So first of all, Jonah is using very sound, solid mosaic theology to say, hey, I'm monotheistic, right. contra polytheistic. But, 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 but what's the point of even saying that? What's the point of saying, I believe in one God, I believe in this powerful God, and yet not not connecting the dots. Well, right. Well, here's the point of that. Then you go from the Genesis narrative down to the responsibility of that narrative, right? Which is Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the the Ten Commandments, right? But particularly Deuteronomy chapter number 6, which is the daily creed and prayer of Israelis that they pray twice a day, twice a day. And and this is at the center of their worship. And by the way, it is the greatest commandment or foundation upon which the law and the prophets are built. Go ahead. Okay, so this this brings up the question that that is, it's sort of, it's um, not the obvious question, but it's the, it's the question of just because you have this knowledge you could be repeating the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or you can you can say the Ten Commandments, or you can repeat your good theology and it's up here in your head, you know, and yet somehow it doesn't trickle down to your heart into your life. And that's what we have with Jonah. He knows who God is, he knows what God's about, he knows what the scriptures say. I mean he knows the voice of God. He's declared prophecies in the past, uh, as we looked at before, uh, was a prophet from God. And yet, there there isn't there is a disconnect between what he knows and what he be, he believes in the way his heart is 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 living. Um, it's not he doesn't need more knowledge and more confession of of who God is is not really changing him. You know, it's it's sort of like and then maybe that's the point because oftentimes we as as Christians or as believers we have a lot of knowledge. Um, but there's there's a there's a work on on the heart that God wants to do to make that connection from the head down to the heart and into the life. That's the work of the Holy Spirit that that only He does. And here we're, we're seeing this Jonah, this prophet, who in a lot of ways is a like like a lot of believers, like like a lot of us. We have good theology, we have good doctrinal statements. We we you know we do the right things. You know we check the right boxes when when we're asked. But somehow in our heart of hearts, in our very lives, it often is not there. And I think, it, you know, and just, I know we're still early in the book, um, God's project really is more of Jonah than it is on anybody else, and it is of dealing with his own heart. Um, so you bring up you bring up the fact that, he's, that he has good theology, and he has, you, you know, talking about Genesis and Exodus and down in Deuteronomy. So what? So here's where it runs. Yeah. By the time you get to chapter number six, right? Your Shema, Shema Yisrael, um, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, Hero Yisrael, the Lord thy God, the Lord alone. Right. Now you could translate that word Echad one, but in the verses before the pretext right. and in the posttext, right. the the sense of it is not necessarily trying to speak to the nature of God, right. as much as it's trying to speak to the the um, 
um, the particularity of worship belonging to right. God right. alone or only, right? And so, but the first word of that really does control the direction of the text because hearing yeah. in this text is not just the reception of information or sound waves through the ears. Hearing in this text is Obey. covenantal listening yeah. that results in an obedience to the God of the covenant and the stipulations of the covenant. So the idea is hearing in the Shema looks like I'm listening, I'm giving proper respect and covenantal obedience to. So when he says, I fear or I worship the idea of God alone, he's actually kind of summarizing, if you will, or paraphrasing the Shema, right. except he's not, as you said, doing due diligence right. to the Shema and to the intent of the Shema in that he's stating it in a paraphrased form, but he's not adhering to it. Right. So his lips are betraying his life in that I worship this God, but right now I'm not listening to yeah. him yeah. because I'm not obeying his covenant and I'm not obeying his prophetic demands or call upon my life. And, and here's where that becomes important because now I want to tie in what you were saying earlier, John. You were saying... This guy is not listening. I mean, here's God in one corner, the God of the universe, and here's this little prophet. What's wrong with this guy's thinking? And this is where this little area in the book becomes a microcosm of the macrocosmic message of this book. Let me restate that. This is a small picture of the big picture of this book because what it's going to show is the scandalous mercy that God is going to show to the people that God, that Jonah doesn't want him to show it to. Jonah is actually a, a recipient of that mercy right now in his regretful stance against God in disobedience because all the time that he's going in opposition to God, God is showing him mercy. And you're right. He's, he's, he's putting himself in an arena where he should be judged, but God is not in fact judging him consequentially to the level that he should be judging him. He's showing him mercy. Yeah. It's the same. It's, a, it's like when Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees and they're, and they're upset that he's welcoming sinners, and uh, and uh, he says, um, "He who has been forgiven much loves much." And Jonah is not realizing that the same mercy that God's going to extend on the Ninevites is the mercy that he himself has just received. That's that's profound, because oftentimes you know we are, you know. We're we're not we're oblivious sometimes to the fact of how gracious God is to us, and yet we don't we can't we have a hard time turning around and giving that grace to somebody else. And usually, what happens is if God wants to teach us something, He'll or wants to use us for some purpose in 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 life, uh, and to impact people for His for His kingdom, He'll often give us the the lab test first, you know. Yes, um, and he'll bring us through the lab test. Now, of course, I wouldn't want to be the lab test that goes through the belly of a of a, stu of a stomach of a of a fish. But the point is that that oftentimes God would want to teach us experientially first um, for us to realize it's like this: people who have been through difficult times and have 
um, sought out the grace and mercy of God and have received it, let's say. They've gone through a difficult life. They've gone through hardships. Uh, they've cried out to God, and God's been merciful, merciful to them, and they understand. Usually what happens is those people, when they meet people later on who are in similar circumstances, they'll have compassion on them. Um, the ones who've never experienced that have a hard time having compassion. They have a hard time identifying themselves with that. But the person who's gone through it, uh, when they meet people, they'll say, I, I understand what you're going through. I've been through the same thing. Let me help you out. Let me show you the, what God did for me. And and uh, it's a work that God does in, 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 in the believers. It's a work that God's trying to do in Jonah. Unfortunately, of course, the book of Jonah finishes with us. In, it doesn't finish with the rest of his life. It finish, finishes with the question that's unanswered. Uh, in one sense, it's speaking to the nation of Israel because their own obstinate heart, obstinate hearts, and their arrogant hearts there that said, "Hey, we have God. We, you know, you guys don't have God. Therefore, you know, you guys are toast." That was the arrogance that came about. Was contrary to what God really wanted to do through them. You know, God really wanted to work on their hearts and and transform them so that they would realize they could communicate the mercy and grace of God to the people around them. And Jonah is a picture of of where that obstinate heart is and God's attempts and efforts to try to change that. And of course, the question is, uh, the life of Jonah is left unanswered because the question really should be is, how, how ought this to continue or what would happen or... Um, uh, will this be successful? You know, will will God be able to change? And it's 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 really left a question that's left unanswered. You know, it's kind of it makes you think, but it's not it's not uh, uh, not unheard of. But it's not um, it's it's no question that God is He is actively trying to reach this man, and actively trying to um, to change this man as well. Uh, let's go, let's go on real fast because. Uh, we can be here like for three more hours on this yeah, one. I, I think on that, one word. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think that a point of application must be made, and I think you referred to it earlier. And so I simply make to John that in verse number nine, if we are claiming um, proper orthodox beliefs, that belief is realized in a behavior that is consistent with who we believe in right. and what we say we believe. And and secondarily, I think what you were seeking to say is absolutely accurate, that there is the resonance here of an Abrahamic covenant where God wants to reach more right. than just um, an ethnic group of people that we prefer or people who we are endeared toward. And so we have to realize that the mercy of God is broader than we might think. Right. Now, he's not going to break the biblical rules to bring people in, right? Uh, they're going to have to come in um, uh, salvifically by grace through faith, New Testament thinking now, through Christ it's, alone. It's still Bible. Yes, right. They're going to have to come in through Christ alone. But that said, God wants to save and extend a hope and a help to far more than maybe our little little limited minds are ready to receive. And we need to be carriers of his word, uh, not, not individuals who uh, seek to try and... Uh, um, 
maybe measure or evaluate uh, his word and say, I'm not sure that you should reach out to this or that person. Maybe we need to sit back and allow him to be God and let us take the appropriate place of humility and serve in our position as mouthpieces. You said verse number 10. You were thinking about verse number 10. Well, excuse me. Verse 10 uh, says, Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Um, Obviously, their reaction, they're sort of, they're more attuned to what's going on, it seems like. They're more attuned. They recognize not just, you know, that there's a cause to the storm. They recognize that after he confesses who he is, I am a hero, I serve the Lord, God of, uh, made heaven and, and uh, made the sea and dry land. They recognize that you're playing with fire, basically. How could you do, you're, what? You're who, and you know, and you put us, you picked the wrong boat, brother, because I, I would be throwing you overboard real fast, you know? <laughs> but they recognize, they, they have a fear of God. They have a they have a fear, and we say sometimes we say, "Oh, fear of God." That just means awe and respectful. No, 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 no. Fear means fear. You know, it means it's not this. You know, we as Christians we try to soften the blow too much. Yes, we try to soften the blow way too much. No, fear is the same word. It's this word that's repeated once, twice, three or four times. I forget how many times it's in this. Several times, fear, fear. All right, all right, rather. Um, they they the reaction. Is 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 telling that he ought to have had that reaction, and they're not even believers in God. They 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 get it, and so um, and so of course they 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 respond and ask him what what should we do? They recognize that that's that something has to change. The course has to correct. You know the the you've gone too far, running out of something's not working here. Something has to change. They recognize that. Um, but I just, I just think that their their reaction in um, in fear and in responding to this whole environment that's going on uh, is really telling because they're the only ones who are leading this discussion of of going and asking God for help, you know, of of of, of changing course because of of what God is is doing here, and Jonah doesn't have that, and and they have to almost twist his arm to get there, so. He, they said, um, you know, he told them what he was doing. And verse 11 says, So they said to him, What should we do that, that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly strong. It's not settling down. Just because he says, I'm a Yahwehist or I'm a follower of God, the storm is still coming. It's getting worse and worse. And they recognize that, okay, something has to give here. Yeah. I, I think, John, when you're looking at verse number 10, there, there are several things about this verse that's absolutely startling. Um, um, like for instance, if you're looking at this text, when you're looking at the Hebrew text, it starts off with an emphasis. It's, and afraid the men were greatly afraid, right? Right. It's, it's using this word and now it repeats this word, but then it puts a description on the intensity of the word. Right. So as a result of what he said is what it's arguing, whatever their level of fear was up to this point. It became more intense, um, very intense, right. right? And so, while they become afraid, they ask him a question. They say, um, literally in the Hebrew, "Ma mazuoth," 
or or it's the word what have you done right right now now here's what an individual has to understand about this phrase this is a question and of course this is one of their questions uh in the series of their many questions in the book. And remember, there's only 12 questions, and they ask the majority of the questions that's in the book. But when they ask this phrase, this is a unique phrase within the framework of Scripture. Now, this phrase is first mentioned in Genesis chapter number 3, and uh, it actually carries, we of course have in hermeneutics, what we refer to, or in biblical interpretation, as the law of first mention, right? Right. And the Law of first mention would argue for two things. First, it would argue um, that wherever you see something mentioned first, it is highly significant. Right. But secondarily, wherever you find what you find mentioned first is going to leave a seed of what you're going to probably find to come when you have that statement, that right. word, or that term, or that phrase, right? Right. The first time that this is mentioned in the biblical text is when Adam and Eve sin, and Adam right. points out to God that the woman that you gave me uh, has 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 basically done this, and she gave me to eat, uh, gave me the fruit and I ate, and God asks her this very question in this exact language: right. What have you done? And the idea is to be incensed to be bothered, um, uh, wondering, if you will, do you have any clue the jeopardy that you've just put this this whole scenario in? There's a, a, The other example I was thinking of is when Abraham passes off his wife. Genesis chapter 12. number... Yes. To, Genesis chapter number 20, and, and, and you see and, that in Genesis 12 as and, well. And, and Pharaoh says, and almost takes Sarah to be you know, part of his harem. harem, and he says the same thing. What have, what have you done? What? It, what, what <laughs> and, and here's what happens, I almost John. came close, you it, know? Well, here's, he's not just saying, I almost came close. God like, shows I, up to this right. king he says, You're a and man. says, do you realize yeah. that if you hadn't been innocent, I would have killed you? And so, so there, there is this sense by this king... What kind of situation, listen, contextually, as a supposed servant of God, did you just put me in? Right. So then the question, the question then, it's, it's posed to Jonah. Right. They're, they're realizing their life's at stake. We could have been killed here. What were you thinking? I mean, what is it? Now, here's this little insight here into, into the person that is... Running from God running and being from God disobedient. Being disobedient. Is affecting not only they think they're getting it away, but it's having ripple effect on the people around them, and so the people around them have to suffer and go through situations and trials and difficulties because of their they're running away. You think you're just you're in, you think you're in seclusion. You think your actions are just they don't affect anybody else, but when you're running from God, oh, they have a they have a stormy effect, no pun intended, on the and people around you because God. God's not going to let you get away. So, yeah. Well, I think it's important to mention, and of course, this happens, what, twice with Abram? Right. And then it happens with his son, Isaac, right? Yeah. And you see this phraseology used in, in, in a few places before this narrative, but you see this particular area where this phrase is employed, but let me contextualize it now within the book of Jonah itself, because you have to remember verses one and two, you have the prophetic commission, right? Right. right. 
Right. So he's running from God, but he's running from his purpose. And so the Bible poses him now as a dangerous uh, uh, escapee. Um, literally, since he's not adhering to God, he's not only becoming a danger to himself, but he's becoming a danger to anyone okay. who harbors a man who's willing to run away from God and as such run away from his purpose. Okay, okay so let's, let's, let's fast forward to 2017. Absolutely. Because the question is, okay, that's Jonah... You know, that's that was him. That was him running from God. Okay, does that happen today? Um, does is God cause quote unquote storms to be like this so that people are lives are in danger because somebody's running from God? Come on, CL. I mean, come on, John. Well, you know, is that? I mean, is that the? Is that the nature of God? Is that? I mean, our our storms. You know, this is a literal storm. I mean, does that mean hurricanes come left and right because somebody's disobeying God, or or are there um, you know, is this is this a pattern in Scripture, where where is this is just a one case where Jonah is being this way, or is there a pattern in Scripture where that yeah, this is what how God works, you know? Because it's one thing to read about Jonah and stuff; it's another to say, okay, I am running from God. Hmm. Yes, can be situations get difficult. Yes, can it be? You know, I know a situation where somebody's running from God. And God keeps shutting a door after door after door after door. Hmm. Now, he's not sending storm after storm after storm, but he's shutting door after door after door. But that is a storm. It's a it storm. It is a, a sort of storm. But his job. life's not in danger necessarily, but it's meant to get his attention. My, my question is, I mean, this seems kind of, you know, out of, you know, this is like, this is really extreme. You know, send a storm to, to, to get the guy? Come on. Right. But John, here's what I want to admit. I, I want to admit that, first of all, the extremity of God's action seems to admit, to match the extremity of the prophet's obstinance. Right. Everybody doesn't have that equal level of expression in their obstinance, right? Some people are, are just don't have clarity and they don't know. Or, but I do want to say that God does in fact send various storms. Now, this doesn't necessarily suggest that it's in the form of a hurricane or a tropical storm or right. something of that nature, right. but he does send various storms in a, a manifold or multitudinous ways or in a, in a vicissitude of ways to people on various levels. And so what I don't want to do is I don't want to kind of soften the blow of the of the robust nature of this text right. as a warning because let's let's talk about let's talk about 2017. I, I'm not um, um, oblivious to the fact that people still dare to run from God. yeah. And they still dare to try to escape the hand of God, the call of God. So, so yes, it's possible to run from God. And, and by the way, within Scripture, there are other individuals. Moses wants to tell God, no. Oh, I'm thinking of somebody else. Saul of Tarsus. Absolutely. It's hard for you to kick against the goats, which kind of sort of lets you in the clue that maybe Jesus was, was calling him and he was still running. And this, this maybe you know, why would he bring that up? But here's that's a, a, a another extreme case where God knocks him off his horse, so to speak, and and confronts him with that. But yeah, Moses. Yeah, there there are individuals. In fact, I want to suggest that the prophets do not take lightly the divine commission. 
right? Because what's at stake is not only the adherence to their message or their lack of adherence to the message, but if you're looking in the book of Ezekiel, God says there are strong consequences if I indicate to you to cry out, uh, to warn somebody in order to save their life, right. and you do not, I'm going to hold you responsible and culpable for bloodshed. So maybe to answer the question, I think you sort of did, but the answer to the question of, you know, I think God will turn up the volume to the point where you will hear him. And some people, it means sending a huge storm. With other people, it's not quite as loud. Maybe not, maybe a little bit louder than that. And God gets their attention. So whatever God has to do to get your attention where you finally, you know, turn around. Um, so I don't think he's, I think the pattern really, to answer my question, depends on the person he's dealing with. Absolutely. The level of, of arrogance or pride or obstinance and unwillingness. But as one author said, God whispers to us in our moments of delight. Yes. But he shouts to us in our pain. In our pain. Right? And, and. But I think it's important for us to consider, John, again, I'm not so foolhearted and gullible and innocent in my thinking to promote the idea that people don't run from God and his invitation to ministerial partnership today. Right. However, here's what I'd like to say to those individuals. Um, I think you need to realize who you're running from. There's no place you can run. The earth is the Lord's. He's still the God of the heavens, the earth, the dry land, and the seas. You can't run from him. Uh, Have you not read Psalm 139? No matter where you go, you are before him. So you can't escape the presence of God. But secondarily, um, not only realize who you're running from, But realize what you're running from. You're running from God's invitation to employ you, to use you. This is the purpose of your life, to belong to him and to become an instrument of his. And and here's the strength of this, John. Here's the, the, the detrimental strength of this. This is exactly in a different way what we did in the garden. We were made by God to co-partner, to cultivate it and to keep it. But we decide, hey, we think we can touch a tree without your permission. We think we can run a world without your sovereign guidance and leadership. And you know what? How's that working for us right now as the human populi? Not so well. It didn't work well for the first couple, and it won't work well for anyone who's trying to see to the governance of his or her life by themselves. Now, we're not autonomous. We are not self-law driven. We are driven by the edict and the decrees and the commands of God. But next, here's what you need to realize. When you run, you suffer. I mean, it might not be this major cataclysmic storm as you read in this book, but it's your own personal storm, isn't it? It's your, it's your emotional storm. It's your relational storm. It's your, it's your vocational storm. Uh, it's your sociological storm. Uh, the people, the friends, the family around you suddenly 
cannot bring you the support, the comfort, or the encouragement that they were once able to bring you. You find that the world that you were feeling and feeding uh, nutrients from, uh, no longer is it supplying and satisfying you. Because if you try to, to, to gain the nutrients from a world without God, you tend to realize that it dries up very quickly. It, no, no, sir, no, ma'am. You, you can't choose to just do something for your wife and for your children or for your husband and your children or for your career and, and for your academic uh, preferences and ignore God. Because if you ignore God, it's going to suck and sap the life out of everything that you are worshiping and posing as an idol contra the one true God who is to be worshiped. So I think it's important for us to suggest that as it was with this prophet, so it is now. There are men and women who run from God. But the truth of the matter is, you're practically running in place because you can never ex- you can never escape his presence if you go into heaven he's there if you make your bed in the furthest reach, re, uh, regions of the earth even there he's present so my suggestion is since you can't run from him why not embrace who he is and what he's called you to, and by the way, what he's trying to use you for and preserve you for, namely, Jonah, he's trying to make you the most successful missionary of the First Testament. Moses, he's trying to make you the most successful prophet of the First Testament. Sir, ma'am, I don't know what he's trying to use you to do, but I have a sense that if it's God calling you, it's nothing short of great. Thank you again for listening to Living Truth with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. If you would like to hear this podcast again or previous episodes, you may do so at passionforhisword.com. That's passionforhisword.com. You may also like us on Facebook at Living Truth Radio Broadcast. That's Living Truth Radio Broadcast. Again, our prayer for you is that God would sanctify you in truth, for His Word is truth.